Welcome to the Vail Christian Church Podcast, where we are training followers of Christ to worship, gather, give, and serve. You've been in a restaurant where the table wobbles when you sit down and you put your food on it. So aggravating, isn't it? I think I got it. <laughs> it's good to see you today. Take your Bible out and turn to the Gospel of Mark. That's where we are today, Mark chapter 4. And it's uh, kind of just a little bit of a review, I guess, for just a few minutes. The Gospel of Mark that we've been in for now uh, multiple Sundays. It is, uh, uh, all the Gospels are unique. They all have a purpose. They all have a perspective a unique author, and there's a little bit different intent because there's a little bit different audience um, uh, when they're written, okay? A lot of times we sort of forget a little bit because you get sucked into the story or the scene or the, the author as, as he's writing this. You get sucked into it, but you, you begin to... Um, um, maybe not realize that um, when these were launched, because you're kind of sucked into things unfolding sort of real time. Does that make sense? So there's uh, Mark is the first. Mark, maybe John, I don't know. There's a little speculation in that. Probably doesn't matter a lot. But uh, Mark's the, the first gospel to arrive on the scene. But... There's been a lot that's happened before that. The Gospels weren't the first writings from the apostles that were delivered to people. Um, Paul, um, in particular, and Peter, they were preaching, teaching, and so their letters were actually in front of these Gospels. So these Gospels then take on a different purpose when they come onto the scene. So Christ followers already had the gospel before the gospels were delivered to them. Does that make sense? So sometimes your perspective gets a little mixed up if you're not careful in that. So Mark, he's got a specific audience, and he is writing um, in a way that... Um, uh, for a couple of reasons, I mean, people are under persecution and some things like that. So this is to instill confidence and to sort of weed out maybe uh, some that are not embracing everything as they should, right? So um, and Jesus' uh, teaching at this point in chapter 4 has reached a place now in the gospel. So with that in mind, um, as this story's unfolded, right, as you're reading it, Keep in mind that people already have the gospel, okay? Okay? So now, if you take this into real time, though, into the story, as uh, Mark is recording it through the lens of Peter, through his memories, through his experiences, all right, and his audience, you know, Mark is trying to make some points, quite honestly. He's trying to drive some things home, and he's... He's revealing some things about Jesus, and he's revealing some things about um, uh, Jesus that are maybe unique uh, from a perspective that the other Gospels aren't, are, uh, don't do. 
but that doesn't mean because he's read the other gospels. Does that make sense? So he's like, I'm going to tell it like this. Uh, it might be actually the other way around uh, by the time Matthew and Luke come onto the scene, right? Okay. So Peter's preached. All these things have happened. The church is m- kind of um, birthed at this point. Okay. And Peter's, um, Peter is, um, has been aggressively leading things. Now, in this, so where we are in chapter four, Jesus has started a revolution. He has turned things upside down. And his intention, all right, that you pick up from Mark is that um, he's trying to replace people's worldview, their view of the kingdom, their view of uh, Messiah, their, their national perspective and their, their perspective um, about God. He's, he's replacing all that. He's giving them a new lens and a new process to think through, all right? And that is really hard for folks. This is why now and then, uh, up to this point, I've actually tried to utilize some illustrations that can tend to be tense and aggravating in our real time um, because uh, just um, when someone begins to monkey with, is a great way to say it, monkey with your perspective on God and who he is, when somebody begins to monkey with your, your understanding and your, your experiences um, with any issue, all right, and they, they change it and they say, no, 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 this is it. And they, you know, we're not easy, we don't easily go, oh, okay, all right, I'm gonna just embrace that, you know? So I, I've talked about how uh, uh, several controversial issues with us, right? Just begin a discussion about marriage, begin a discussion about divorce, remarriage, things like that, and begin to, uh, you know, we all have real-time experiences in, in our lives with those things, okay? And, and we understand things through that, through, through those lenses, and, and, and add our layers of emotion uh, to that, and then... When uh, truth is presented, whether you believe it or not, when ideas and, uh, are, are presented, oh, man, it's, it's hard to get your arms around, and it can make, it f- make you feel tense, right? I use the NFL issue and, you know, political issues, because uh, there's political issues um, at the time going on as well, right? I use those kinds of things with this, too, because we all have different understandings and, and beliefs. You know, if you have a child in the military... And you begin to talk about this. Uh, if you have a loved one in the military who's put their life on the line, and you just start talking to them about this whole kneeling issue, you know, in their perspective. Or if you're a police officer, or uh, if you're black, you know, everybody brings a different uh, perspective and uh, life to this. So, so these issues can be tense. And I think it's okay, actually. If there's no intensity as you read this, you're probably not really getting it because the gospel is controversial, because Jesus is controversial, because his message is radical. Being a Christ follower is actually radical. Devoting your life to Christ, following Jesus, his teachings, and and what he wants. I mean, if people don't have to deal with you in terms of uh, your lifestyle and what you believe, then you're probably not really living it in a way that um, is presenting uh, what you believe. Does that make sense? 
And uh, that's not necessarily so much a criticism as it is a motivation and a challenge. When our faith um, is fleshed out, um, it becomes a pretty difficult life to live, actually. It becomes very difficult in a lot of ways. We have to be careful with our words. We have to choose our words wisely. We have to choose our issues wisely. We, you know, uh, which hills are we going to battle on, <laughs> right? And some people have different views about that um, on, oh, we shouldn't discuss these things. I brought up an issue with our staff this week. I said, you know, it seems to me that that the lifestyle of a Christ follower in the church, you know, we're going to have to, our, our people, us, we're going to be living through more and more turmoil, more and more difficulty. Uh, we're going to have to really work hard to navigate this political thing that we're living in, right? It's, it's, it's getting tense. I mean, our conversations, the people you interact with, your family, everybody comes from a, a little bit different place. And so I said, you know, I, I, I think we're going to have to engage, you know, carefully and wisely, but we're gonna, we have to engage. I mean, how can you shepherd people through these things and help them navigate um, through this stuff? So keep this in mind as the gospel writers are writing that, I mean, this is part of their purpose. As they present Jesus, it's, it's to help <laughs> To, to acknowledge, to instill confidence. And the parables that Jesus begins to teach in now in chapter four, it becomes his practice uh, in the way he teaches, okay? They are meant, there, there is a purpose behind all of them. And, there, and, and we're gonna get to the, those implications. What are, its, what are the purposes of these parables? Why teach in parables? <laughs> Why do this? It just uh, seems a little odd. Let's go ahead and look at... Um, Mark chapter 4, and there's about 20 verses we're going to plow through today, okay? And they're fairly familiar, actually, to a lot of people. Maybe you've read this story before. I hope you've been reading through Mark. Let's go ahead and just start in uh, verse 1, chapter 4. Again, he began to teach by the lake, and such a large crowd, such a large crowd gathered around him that he got into a boat on the lake and sat there while the whole crowd was on the shore by the lake. And he taught them many things in parables. And in his teaching, said to them, listen, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil. Sprang up at once because the soil was not deep. When the sun came, it was scorched. And because it didn't have sufficient root, it withered. Other seed fell uh, among the thorns, and they grew up and choked it, and it didn't produce grain. But other seed fell on good soil, and it produced grain, sprouting and growing, some yielding 30 times as much, some 60, and some 100 times. And he said, whoever has ears to hear had better listen. Okay, wow. So listen, if if you got ears, you should listen. I, I don't know, it just seems like Jesus says something like that. You should do it, okay? But also it seems like, what, what are you, I'm listening, you know? I don't know, okay? All right, now, 
Go to verse 10. When he was alone with those around him, with the 12, asked him about the parables. And he said to them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but those outside everything is in parables. So that although they look, they may look but not see. Although they hear, they may not hear, but not under, they may hear but not understand, so they may not repent and be forgiven. And he said to them, don't you understand this parable? And how will you understand any parable? <laughs> I'm just like, Jesus, what are you doing? I mean, this is the whole thing. I, yes, I want to understand, okay? Verse 14, the sower sows the word. These are the ones in the path where the word is sown. When everyone, they hear, immediately Satan comes and snatches the word that was sown in them. These are the ones sown on rocky ground. As soon as they hear the word, they receive it with joy, but have no root in themselves and they do not endure. Then when trouble or persecutions come because of the word, Immediately they fall away. Others are the ones sown among thorns or weeds, like in the front of my house. They are those who hear the word, but worldly cares and seductiveness of wealth and the desire for other things come in and choke the word and it produces nothing. Verse 20, these are the ones sown on good soil they hear the word, they receive it, they bear fruit, one thirty times as much, 60 and one a hundred. All right, now, so this is a dramatic shift in the whole story. Everything shifts right here. We've gone through all these controversies with Jesus up to this point. It's just like he's trying to get himself killed if you're reading this real time. You're like, what? Yes, I get it. I'm beginning to understand more and more why Jesus was crucified. Opposition towards him has escalated real time. Last week, it was all capped off. You know, the controversy between him and the religious authorities, it all kind of comes to a head. So now Israel's leaders had totally rejected him. They totally have rejected Jesus by this time, attributing his power, all right, and his saving work of casting out demons to Beelzebub, the chief ruler of the demons, right? What's he going to do now since they're sort of, the, the die has been cast, so to speak, and so this is, the, everybody's in, sort of entrenched. How do you respond when you share the gospel with people you love and they are firmly entrenched against it? Have you come up to folks like that? Do you know folks like that? It's like, uh-uh. Their, their mind is made up. Maybe even when you're in political discussions, it's like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm not changing you. You, you believe things this way, all right? You're getting ahead of me. Don't put my notes up just yet. Okay, how did I know? Everybody's like reading my notes, all right? So I just want you to look at what Mark says here in the first two verses. Look down at your Bible now and look at the first two verses, okay? He began to teach by the lake. Such a large crowd gathered around him. He got into the boat on the lake. He sat there while the whole crowd was on the shore by the lake. 
And he taught them many things in parables. So he responds to the opposition by changing both the arena and the method. He changes the arena and the method. I think that's brilliant. He leaves the synagogue. He goes out into the open air to teach. He does this from a boat. Maybe it's going to serve as a way of escape, all kinds of things like that, right? But more importantly, the water surface is going to amplify his voice. That is unique, all right? It's going to amplify his voice. Maybe it's going to serve as a way of escape, all these things. Now, I've been to this place, so you, you kind of skipped ahead. Go ahead and put up my, put up my notes there. So that, that's it. <clears throat> these are a couple of questions that we want to ask, right? How should we respond when we share the gospel with people who are entrenched? How do you respond um, when people are entrenched? So this is a frustrating thing for us. This is a frustrating thing for me. When people just are like, you know, it's just, it doesn't seem like any conversation is going to change anything. So Jesus, this is his method right here. And I think you need to think about this too. Even when Linda and I are in a little bit of a fuss, I know it's surprising that we would ever fuss, all right? But, you know, I got to choose the right place and the right time. You know, if, if I'm wise, everything can change, actually. Usually, you know, uh, when I choose to talk to Linda uh, you know, uh, about some things and it doesn't go well, it's because of, I don't know, sometimes geography. You know, it's like, hey, she's getting ready to go to work. Bad time to talk about something, all right? Um, you know, she's putting her makeup on, she's doing all these things. It's like, get out of here, would you? Right? You know, not, oh, um, if she's tired. Okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm making that point because what about just the, your relationships around you as well? I mean, there's a place and there's a time and there's a way, right? And so Jesus gets that. He changes the arena and the method of his teaching. Now, look, go ahead and uh, put these next things up. I think it's my uh, pictures. So, this is what he does. He goes to this place in a boat to teach. And from this slide right here, this is, uh, I'm in a boat taking a picture of this hillside right here. And um, it doesn't seem like it, but it's kind of an amphitheater area. It's at the actual place where Jesus did this teaching. It's called the Bay of Parables or the, or Sower's Bay. All right, you can go right to it and see. This is not very far from where he was. Go ahead, keep, keep uh, plowing through here. Um, you can imagine him being in a boat. Oh, there's a great perspective right there. You put your boat in the water and then everybody can sit all around up here. All right, now there's agriculture and trees and all that kind of stuff and a road going right through there. But you can be up on top of that hill across the road. I promise you, you can be there and you can be sitting in the boat and if there's no traffic and if it's quiet, Somebody can be talking in right down there on that shore and the water somehow magically just bounces off, uh, uh, the, the sound bounces off the water and it projects up all around there and everybody can hear because there's probably thousands of people listening to him right here. Maybe a thousand people sitting just right there up all around in there and he's teaching from a boat. You could be sitting right there where I'm taking that picture and hear anybody talking within reason. It's, it's, um, it's actually been proven over and over again. They'll do it on a tour if you, if you want. You can take a tour well and, and they'll do it for you right there. It's pretty amazing. 
Pretty amazing spot. So this is what he chooses to go. This is where he um, uh, teaches. It's a bay between Capernaum and another place, um, Tabgia. It's kind of a weird place. But because of all of the rejection that he's um, facing in in, in, in certain ways, he puts his ministry outside the synagogue, um, but it has opened up an even wider sphere of ministry. There's only a certain amount of people can fit in the synagogue or somebody's house. So, in, in the face of this opposition, he, he, he not only changes the arena, but he also changes his method, right? He begins to teach in parables now in a couple of different ways, and he he started to do this in the last controversy in chapter three, and now it becomes his standard practice. So I've wondered a lot about these parables. I've never been satisfied with most people's popular interpretations. And I'm not saying that everybody's wrong about them, but a lot of times you find people saying they're, they're timeless illustrations and that's its purpose. And I don't buy that. I don't buy that they're just timeless in, uh, illustrations of eternal truth or, um, or they're single point sermons or messages in, in, uh, you know, uh, taught in ancient metaphor. I don't buy that either. I think that those are some of those things. But I think they have a greater purpose than just illustration. And I just want to give you some basic keys to interpreting these parables right here. And, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll just look, uh, look at one really today. But there's three pieces to the text that we're looking at, all right? Uh, the parable of uh, the sower, and then second, the explanation of the mystery of this parable, and third, then the interpretation of it, all right? So let's look at the parable of the sower. So this is focuses on verses two through nine, all right? And we already read through verses two through nine. But when you first read it, the story seems absolutely harmless. It seems like it's just a little story. It speaks a familiar agricultural scene. In fact, every element of the account is, was in direct view of its hearers. So when they're sitting in this natural amphitheater out there in those places, right, on the north shores of the Galilee, as the crowd listens intently to the words of Jesus, while well, he commands them the, the words to hear, he, he challenges them or commands them to hear, it doesn't, uh, it, 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 it seems odd that the parable doesn't contain one word of theology, It's not a story that contains any theology, not one quote from the Torah, not one prophetic word, all right, not even an ounce of controversy. It's like you just look around, it's like, okay, this is a farm story. This is a farm story. Who's going to take issue with the uh, the nature of the sower seed? Because the sower seed, you know, grants four radically different destinies based on the quality of the soil. Seems pretty simple, and there's no controversy there. It's farm talk. So a story can be a powerful thing, though, right? A story can be huge. 
And when at last they are in seclusion away from the crowd, Jesus reveals to his followers, to his guys, he answers some questions, the divine secrets of the parable. So let's look at the purpose of the parables because they are, uh, their purpose in, in essence is to reveal something and to conceal something at the same time. Look at verses 10 through 12. When he's alone, those around him with the 12 ask him about the parables. He said, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you But to those outside, everything's in parables. So that although they look, they may not look, they they may look but not see. And although they hear, they may not hear but do not understand. Right? They may hear, but they don't understand. So that so they may not repent and be forgiven. Now that sounds crazy. So after he shares the parable from the boat. He, he, he withdraws from public view. Then his followers and the 12 guys, right, they begin to question him about the why of the parable. And he explains that their purpose is to make clear distinctions between those who are inside and those who are outside of the kingdom. So you got to do a little New Testament work right here. Moses had written... All right, in Deuteronomy 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but these things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. And so now Jesus redefines who the true children are. Who are the true children? He quotes from Isaiah chapter 6. And at first glance, this text seems to speak of harsh, sort of judgmental, arbitrary predestination. Why would God have a prophet preach for the purpose of blinding people and confusing people and hardening their hearts? And, but you have to look at the closer context of the passage. It reveals a different picture. In Isaiah, God holds court, basically, with people, with his people. And he complains as their father against his rebellion, uh, he, he's complaining to, uh, uh, against his rebellious sons that they fully lack understanding. He invites them to reason together with him, right? Offering salvation if they would just repent. And the offer seems to fall on deaf ears. And the Lord's sad because of the faithlessness of his people, especially the rebellion of its rulers, concluding in verses concluding like this with a vow to purge the city and separate between the righteous and the wicked. So there's a constant, the the constant theme in the midst of these allegations is Israel's idolatry, choosing idols over the living God. So in response, what happens here, Yahweh, their maker, God, will now confirm them in their decision by recreating them in the image of the gods they have chosen. I know it sounds complicated. So Isaiah, his preaching is to make the heart of his people fat and their ears heavy and their eyes dim. Sounds crazy. This blinding and deafening is ironic judgment upon the nation of idolaters. And the condition appears confirmed when Their salvation is characterized by restoration of sight and hearing and understanding. Now, this same judicial response is happening through Jesus to leaders who have already refused the message, all right? So you got all these leaders and they've refused the message and now confirm them in their logic and their 
and, and, and the consequences of their choice. You see, the parables have a dual pur- purpose of hardening the hearts that are already hard, making them more uh, harder, right? While at the same time revealing the mystery of the kingdom to those on the inside. That's the way he's teaching. Sounds kind of crazy, but the parable is an ingenious method of disclosing a message that's subversive and dangerous. He's telling this to people who believe. Israel's history is moving towards a climax, but it's not happening the way it was expected, all right, for a reason. Jesus is replacing Israel's worldview, remember? And its hopes and its dreams and this truth, it, the truth had to be veiled because if it was just stated plainly, it would just cause a riot and it wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't unfold correctly. So this is why he does this. Now, it sounds a little complicated and like, oh my gosh, you know, this is why I don't read the Bible because it's so hard to understand. I get it. So how does the parable then draw the listeners in? Well, the answer is through the stories and through the images. Through the stories and the images, they're familiar to people. They're familiar to Israel. The stories told by Jesus drew his hearers into the world familiar to them. Then once they were captivated by the familiar, then Jesus adds surprising new twists at the end. It's pretty amazing, right? His parables were designed to break open and shatter the prevailing worldview. All right? Now, I say all that, and you're like, okay, that's great. It sounds good. But I'm telling you, this is what, uh, here's a small lesson for us. We have to help people with their worldview. We have to shadow their, uh, shatter their worldview and change their worldview. And if you don't understand this then you're, uh, and you have teenagers, you better be careful. Your teenagers are developing worldview. And if you're not helping them develop their worldview through truth, you're making some mistakes. You're going to have to work at it pretty hard. Otherwise, their worldview will emerge like this. Well, this may be wrong uh, for me, but you'll have to decide if it's wrong for you. Okay, so truth is truth. It's either wrong (laughs) or it's not wrong based on the truth, okay? Do you you understand? If you're not careful, your worldview will be just like, well, everybody gets to decide what's wrong, you know, for you, and so I'm just not going to monkey with that. That's a really warped, bad worldview, And we have to help, see, let me say it like this. So many people, what you have to do is, they don't know they're lost, so you have to get them lost first before they can be saved, before they, they, if they don't know that they're lost. You see what I'm saying? And that takes work. I'm not lost. It's like telling your dad that he needs to look at the map for directions. He's like, I don't need the map. Just try to convince him. I don't need the map. Oh, my, and most of the time, you know what? My dad was right. He totally didn't need the map. So why would he, when, if he was ever lost, why would he actually get the map out? Because most of the time I'm never lost and I'm really confident, right? It's amazing. It's amazing. Okay, this is a, so, so, so artful presentations are really important. We need them today. When we encounter the rejection of the gospel, I mean, we really need this way of thinking. 
All right, let's go on to the interpretation of the sower because it doesn't get any easier, okay? Verses 13 through 20. So he said to them, don't you understand this parable? How are you going to understand any parable? <laughs> Love that. <laughs> oh, man, Jesus, he's so great at this. What familiar imagery is Jesus alluding to as he draws his followers into this parable? Again, the answer comes from Isaiah, Isaiah 55. And I think I have these verses. Put these verses, uh, yeah, go to the next slide there. Yep. Yeah, just go. Keep, there you go. Okay, look at this. Because the prophet Isaiah, he foretells the coming messianic age in which God's word is going to be like seed abundantly sown in the earth, establishing the whole new creation in process. So here you go. The rain and the snow fall from the sky and do not return, but instead water the earth and make it produce and yield crops and provide seed for the planter and food for those who must eat. In the same way, the promise that I make does not return to me having accomplished nothing. No, it is realized as I desire and is fulfilled as I intend. Indeed, you will go out with joy. You'll be led along in peace and the mountains and the hills will give you joyful shout before you. And all the trees in the field will clap their hands. Evergreens will grow in places of thorn bushes. Firs will grow in places of nettles. What are nettles? They will be a monument to the Lord, a permanent reminder that will remain. See, borrowing this image, all right, he borrows this image, whether you can connect to all of it or not, he declares that, there, that, that the new age has arrived in himself, Jesus does. He's... The faithful sower bearing that bag or carrying that bag of seed, teaching wherever he goes. He's the word from God, divinely powerful. The word once sown will not return empty. But now the image of an abundant harvest is qualified. The seeds that are sown bearing different results result in four different destinies. There's four different destinies. But according to Jesus, the reason is not because the seed lacks power. Don't forget that. The seed is powerful. What is the seed? This is the word of God. It's got power. That's not why um, it's not successful three out of the four times. Okay? It's due to the condition of the soil in present day Israel. Now bring this real time. What is the condition of the soil in present day America, in present day Arizona, Tucson, and Vail in the present day of your family, in your neighborhood. In one case, Satan's like a raven. He snatches the seed off the hard ground. This is a veiled reference probably to the scribes, to the leaders, these leaders of, uh, of Israel right now who accuse Jesus of being in collusion with the devil. In another case, the seed is sown on soil that lacks depth, a thin layer of topsoil. You know, it's on the rocky shelf and, and the sun heats the soil and the seeds sprout immediately. And then, you know, some people receive the word with joy, but they're rootless, rootless. Know anybody like that? When affliction and persecution strikes, when tar hard times adversity, they fall away. Jesus is never impressed with people's initial emotional response. So you got to be careful. Emotional responses uh, are unpredictable, and, and, and I don't have a lot of confidence in them either. Someone gives their life to Jesus right after a message. I'm leery of it, actually. 
Because most of the time it's a, an emotional response unless it's been over and over and over again. And then finally, but it's really hard to figure that out a lot of times. So what counts is deep roots that endure, right? Then there are those among the, whom the seed was scattered. They, they heard and they respond, yet the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, it chokes the word. They fall into the weeds, into the thorns. Jesus was equating Israel's current leadership with those of Jeremiah's day, who hardened, uh, hardened, whose hardened hearts and persistent idolatry led them off to exile on Babylon. So, so far, things are looking terrible for the farmer. But then there is the good soil which receives the seed. Deep, rich, fertile soil receives the seed, becomes well-rooted, bears fruit 30, 60, 100 times, right? One out of the four hearers is truly lasting. But the fertility is unbelievable, bearing fruit 30, 60, 100 times in contrast to the other hearers. The good hearers welcome the word immediately so that Satan can't snatch it away. They welcome it deeply so that persecutions and all these other, and adversities, right, can't, suck them in and induce them. They welcome it exclusively so that the other concerns don't stifle it. And by its abundance, three, 30, 60, 100 times more cancels out all the other failure. You ever picked that up about this? That the good soil and the production that happens in the good soil cancels out all the other failure. It seems so sad to focus on the other three failures. And it seems so discouraging and depressing but if you focus on the last one, it cancels everything out. It overwhelms it, unbelievably overwhelms it. Jesus' vision for the kingdom of God looks far past the initial responses and the failures of the first three failures to the faithful remnant right here. So this parable is really instructive to the disciples and it should be to us. Let's just go to the implications. Here we go. You ready? What's this got to do with me? And what are the implications? Humility of spirit. Here's the first implication. The first impact of this parable on the disciples is to move them to a deep sense of humility. It's supposed to move them, followers of Jesus, to a deep sense of humility. Why were they chosen to be given the mysteries of the kingdom? Why were you chosen to be given the mysteries of the kingdom? Why, why do you get it? Why do you understand it? Why did God choose you? This is what's supposed to happen in your head. Why me? When I first met my wife, that's what she said to me. I got five sisters and two brothers. Why me? It was a powerful testimony. It was humbling. It was humbling was what really attracted me to her. She was really humble. She said, I don't know, I don't know why, but he chose me. And, and, and she was so humble about it. You know, what that, you know what that humility does? It overwhelms so much stuff. That's what the first implication here is. It's a gift of pure grace, and so it is with us. These parables ought to capture us in awe and wonder that we were chosen to be recipients of such a divine grace, especially when we learn of the terrible judgment of those who refuse to see. It should humble us. 
and motivate us and propel us forward, right? That God has chosen us, so we better, we better live it. Does that make sense? You better live it. You've been chosen. That's what that parable is supposed to do uh, in real time with them and with us. Produce humility. It also is supposed to produce confidence. Confidence in the word of God. That's what it did for the disciples. It elicited in them confidence and outrageous optimism. Why? Did you focus on the, on the, on the last the huge bag of seeds falling from heaven and it would not return to God empty without accomplishing what, is, what he desired? A seed once embedded in the soil can crack the hardest stone that, uh, um, it, once it sprouts. It just can I was looking at some of the cracks already. Our, our pavement around here is actually pretty new. But if you walk over by the bridge, the other bridge way over there, when you drive around the campus, there's some little cracks and there's some weeds in those cracks. And already those cracks are just like opening up because of the rain and the seed that got in there. And it's just, man, that's how powerful this is, right? It should be full of confidence. The sowing of the seed into earth would create something huge. Remember Isaiah 55? Indeed, you will go out with joy. You will be led along in peace. The mountains and the hills will give a joy shout before you. And all the trees in the fields will clap their hands. Evergreens will grow in places in place of thorn bushes. Ferns will grow in place of nettles. They'll be a monument to the Lord, a permanent reminder that will remain should have total optimism here. Three, 400, you know, five, a hundredfold, a hundred times, right? Whenever we find Jesus in the gospel of Mark, he's teaching the word. The apostles followed his examples, and so should we. Teach the word, teach the word, teach the word. Our task is to follow in the footsteps of the sower, casting seed faithfully, casting seed methodically, Wherever we go. And the thing that motivates us to share is that we know it's power. It's powerful. The word is powerful. The word is powerful. And we should not fail to teach the word, to preach the word, to expound on the word, and to replace it with the tarnishing opinions of folks that have really bad worldview. And then the last one is realistic expectations. And I think this is important, right? The, the disciples are now equipped with realistic expectations. The word is powerful beyond human comprehension. It's the key to, the, to new creation. But the establishment of this new creation is not without resistance. People will resist. People will stiff-arm God. The failure of result is not due to any lack of power in the word, but the condition of the soil. And just as Jesus sowed within the context of a rebellious, idolatrous nation, so do we. We do the same thing. We live in a world where there is a, 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 a ravenous enemy. The devil is alive and well, and there's rampant craziness in the, in the world. It's deceitful. Riches are deceitful. And the flesh lives in every human heart. Uh, 
And it may seem like that everybody's rejecting what you believe. But the future isn't governed by those who reject the seed. Can I say that again? The future is not governed by those who reject the seed. But I got to tell you, as a, a life as a pastor, it, uh, the rejection of the seed just bums me out the most. And if I'm not careful, that's all I focus on. And that's all I, 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 I get consumed with that. Because people just reject it right and left. And the, the immaturity and the lack of understanding and the lack of, you know, all, all of this, uh, the lack of commitment, it just really can drag me down. And maybe it's doing that to you too. But the future's not governed by those who reject the seed, but by the powerful, or, or excuse me, but by the faithful, the faithful who are fruitful beyond number. So it's my prayer that God would give us the faith to keep our vision focused on the faithful since they hold the future. My pastor growing up, he would say, in all kinds of contexts, he would just say it like this, Ben, you're getting too focused on everybody who doesn't want to be discipled. You need to go. It just sounded so dumb at the time. I'm like, that just, you need to go with the goers. That's what he would say. You need to go with the goers. You know what he meant? He says, you need to focus on the faithful, man. <laughs> Bow your head with me. Lord God, help us to cast the seed, to spread the seed, to sow the seed. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be faithful at sowing the seed and not get bummed out by those three soils. It's so easy to do that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have compassion and love and, and patience and tenacity. No, no, no. But this parable is to bring balance, humility, confidence in particular, and um, a realistic assessment of things. Help us to be people that are focused like that. Keep us humble, Lord. We're to be humble. Thank you, God, for choosing us. Motivate us now to sow it. Truly, Lord, motivate us. Lord God, give us confidence to teach and preach and to study and to learn and to memorize and present the gospel and to share the gospel. Keep us focused to make sure that we have realistic expectations about what's happening here and who's in charge. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Have a fantastic day, you guys.